No, we did not plan on selling the company after three years when we founded. But because we came across Octopus Energy and it was a really, really good fit in terms of values, in terms of technology, so that our mission to provide green, affordable energy to as many households as possible was the natural fit to carry this on. And together with them and them acquiring us, it was actually possible to do that faster with a bigger impact. When you go into hiring your team, I always look for mindset. Of course, skills need to be there if you're talking a specific task, like if you work in tech, you need to be able to code, etc. But most importantly is the mindset. So do you buy into the vision that we have as a company? So for 100, it was transparent, affordable energy for as many people as possible. Is that something you care about? Is that something you want to contribute to? So the mindset of signing up for that is as important as the skills. And if you find that, then you can grow together. Welcome to Mission First, the podcast to learn from successful entrepreneurs changing the world for the better. Are you in the first three years of your company? And do you want to save time by avoiding making the same mistakes that lots of entrepreneurs have already done? Then make sure to follow this podcast because you are going to get actionable strategies coming directly from those who have found product market fit and are scaling up fast with their for-profit companies or their NGOs. Think about it as a masterclass about product innovation, business models, leadership, and growth marketing. Bonjour, bonjour. I am Gilles Toussaint. I help entrepreneurs have a bigger impact with this podcast, and I also help mission-driven companies increase their revenue more efficiently with growth marketing and my company, GT Impact. Today, I welcome Ilona Ludovic to share with us how she was able to accomplish what most entrepreneurs dream to do to create a green tech company and exit it after less than five years. Ilona is a serial entrepreneur, strategy director in several companies, consultant, and she founded 400 in 2016. 400 became the fairest green energy provider in Germany in 2020 and was acquired by the UK tech unicorn Octopus Energy. Ilona shared with us do's and don'ts about how to start, run and exit an energy company And this episode is a must-listen if you would like to learn when is the right time to sell your company or join forces with another player in your market, how to improve your team's operation by building in-house tech tools, how to ensure that your product or service maintains a culture of positive growth, the importance of mindset when hiring someone to join your team and how valuable are skills in the overall hiring process. Ilona also shared personal experience on how she leveraged technology to provide better customer experience. Are you ready? Let's dive in together. Ilona, thank you very much for being here today. How are you? Hi, Gilles. Very pleased to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Very happy to. So you are or you were the founder of 400. First of all, I had Ernesto Garnier here in this podcast, which was for 100 also a German energy company. Where does the name come from? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I just wanted also to say that um, I'm not the only founder of 400. We founded as a team. I say this specifically because I think is one of the important things when you set out to do something that a good idea is implemented well when you have the right team behind it. Just so we, we come back to this, but I just wanted to say this. So 400, the name came um, out of a few reasons. One is we wanted it to be modern, which goes with the goal of, yes, uh, energy in a modern way. We wanted it to be different, so not immediately associated with one specific product, so that would make people more curious. And then really kind of cheekily also in the alphanumerical listing of companies, when you look into, I don't know, you're choosing an energy supplier from a list of companies, then we would come up on the top. So this was, this was part of it. Now, the name does have another very important reason is we set out to pay people or reward people when they use less energy. So, you know, often when you sign up for energy, you pay in advance and you might not use all of the energy in that month or in that year. And it's good for the energy company. They keep your money and you never hear anything again about this. But we said it's not fair. If people saving energy, we should reward them. And so we used to pay 4% um, of 
well, annual interest, uh, we would reward people and pay that back as a credit into the energy account so they could use this to uh, next year to use energy. So this is the name 400. What is the status now of 400 and when did that exit happen? So 400 changed its name to Octopus Energy Germany. So the company exists, the people, the team exists, uh, it's running. But because it is part of Octopus Energy, the name changed in November last year. So the brand 400 uh, does not trade anymore. It was accumulated into the Octopus family and is now trading under the Octopus Energy name. And was it something that you planned as an entrepreneur to be able to exit the company after three years? Was it something that you were actually aiming for or was it something that just happened and that you were like, okay, yeah, now it's a good time, it's a good opportunity, let's basically exit and sell the company? So when we founded 400, we had the ambition to really go global ourselves. So we had a plan to say Germany is a great market to start with, is a big market, it's deregulated, people are used to switching. And so the opportunity obviously in Germany was big and that's why we started there. But as other energy companies have done, we have looked at where are the other markets that are profitable, where should we be going? And we had plans to do this ourselves. But then of course, through the journey of growing and expanding and taking on more investment, you learn and you meet um, investors that have their own strategy and you see what's happening in the market in, in Europe and in the world. So to come to the beginning, no, we did not plan on selling the company after three years when we found it. But because we came across Octopus Energy and it was a really, really good fit in terms of values, in terms of technology, so that our mission to provide green, affordable energy to as many households as possible was the natural fit to carry this on. And together with them and them acquiring us, it was actually possible to do that faster with a bigger impact. So that's why we decided to do that. And my learning here is just, you just simply don't know what will happen on your path as you meet investors and you reconsider your strategy. It is wonderful actually to come across people who push you in a slightly different direction from what you set out in the beginning. And that's why I couldn't say this is exactly how we wanted it. I say people continue to be flexible because opportunities like that will happen. And it's great that they do. And I'm very pleased that we went this path because it's, it's a success story that is now even bigger than it was had we did it ourselves, had we done it ourselves as we originally planned to do. When you're talking about the technology, in a nutshell, what is the technology behind it? Was it software only solution or were you actually building the whole energy solution behind it? So our part is basically the retail layer, if you want. So energy in itself is a very, very complex thing. But of course, we were not involved in the generation or the distribution of the energy. So we simply provided a service layer for people to have a good experience. So the gap in the market that we identified was people are basically treated very badly. You sign up for a contract, you mostly can't get out of it until it ends. You don't really understand what you're paying for. Is it fair? Is it transparent? And the customer service experience is really, really bad. So this is what we went out to change, to say we tell people exactly what they're paying for and why. And we create a customer service that is led by our users in part and also would be always human. So how can we um, create this connection that people feel heard, that we actually solve their problems? And that is how we did it differently. So it's absolutely the service layer. And how we did it technology-wise is in order to be able to be transparent and affordable, we had to rely on technology that is not cumbersome, that is as agile and flexible as we wanted to be. So it was clear from the start that we would go on the microservices route. So the suppliers then, then we got together with, so because of course we didn't do everything ourselves, we didn't build our own building en engine ourselves. We used other suppliers to help us measure and so on. So you had to then choose partners that are as modern as we are. And what we built ourselves though is the, the whole integration of it. So where does the data come from? How do we process it? Um, how do we then mirror it for our own operations to see what's going on? So we built that ourselves. But the flexibility, the agility, the microservices setup was something that was extremely important from day one. 
And I think that is also what was a big, big advantage over the, the current players who, well, I mean, if you started decades ago, these options were simply not available. And if you have built your engine in that space, it's very difficult to change. So um, we were lucky in the sense that we could start afresh and we could use all the modern technology options, cloud-based, flexible, as I said, and then you build your fabric yourself to provide the service that we wanted. And that worked really well. I'm very proud of that. So I made the test while I went to Octopus Energy yesterday and I could see like a very nice, friendly actually user interface, super easy. In 30 seconds, I had an offer for gas and electricity for three options, basic green and then super green. So what is the difference? How do I know that energy is green? Who is the supplier in that case? How does it work? Okay. So here is where I say your brand comes into play. Obviously, as, a, as an end user, you can't really check if the energy is green because it is the job of the company, of the brand, to make sure that this is the case. So you can't lie to the market. You can't say you're providing green energy when you don't. So I see it as our job to provide the best green energy. And the way you do this is obviously you buy it in the market. So you buy it in the wholesale market. There are different ways of doing this. The way it is tracked is through certificates of origin. So it's like a birth certificate for every megawatt hour that you buy. And this certificate would tell you where does the energy come from? When was it produced? The way we went with 400 was to choose energy that was generated at the time that it was used by the user, which is something that was really important to us. So it's not like you kind of buy certificates and then you just clip them as you're supplying energy, but it's literally at the point of generation it is supplied, which is very nice. We decided at the time to go with mostly wind. So I guess on a day when there's a lot of wind blowing, the, the energy that we supplied to people was mostly generated that way. And there's a process behind that. There's a lot of governance that you, well, basically making sure that companies do what they say and being honest and transparent about this is something that was important from the beginning. So just to your observation about the super green, just to quickly explain what the difference is. Of course, to create energy in a renewable way is something that people understand now. So it's, for example, wind, solar, um, and hydro energy, um, how it's generated and that it's renewable, people understand. With gas, it's still a bit of a, well, conundrum, how can you have green gas? There is some proper green biogas that some companies supply, but it is still limited in availability and very, very much more expensive. So what you can do then is say that in the super green tariff is you offset the gas that you supply. So this is how it works, just to explain this. If you wanted to if you need to use gas, but you want to do the right thing, go for the super green tariff because then the carbon is offset from the gas that we supply to you. Thank you very much for that explanation. Now, let's go back to the very beginning before you, we talk about the do's and don'ts you sent me. So you started it in 2016. But when I check on your LinkedIn profile, uh, you were the founder, imagine director of an organic leather company from 27 till December 2016. You were director of a digital service at Branded Tea from 27 till now. You were your European director at Clario from 2013 till December 2016. You were strategy director at Futurist in 2016 until November 2018. So how do you start that company and how have you combined two founder roles plus two director roles in agencies or jobs while founding a company? So the 2016 date is when we had the idea and we started thinking about how we would implement this. So this was not completely starting and going. It is the, the concept, thinking about where the team would come from, how do we set up, etc. So it was kind of the prep, if you want. We founded the company, incorporated in January 2017. Now, another bit of background on the other things that I did is, of course, when you start your own company in the beginning, you do everything you can to survive. We put all of our own money in the business to kind of get to the MVP. And of course, it is quite a large amount of money you need for this. And you still have to live as a family and yourself. So what I did is I supplemented our income through projects as and when I could do them. That is one reason. But I also fundamentally believe in 
looking into other spaces like my work Futurista that I did in 2018 is very beneficial to what you do. So if you can apply your knowledge in a different environment, you both submit some knowledge and you gain some. So I, I like doing that a lot. So just every now and again, put my head into somebody else's space. So it's both a reason, both reasons, the bootstrapping in the very beginning, but also the continuous knowledge exchange and learning that I very fundamentally care about. And I love working that way. I love having a portfolio of projects that I'm involved with. Now, of course, that I couldn't do this forever. If you're running a company, you really have to put all of you into this. As every entrepreneur who started out will know, you do work 70 hours plus. That's not a secret. It is full on. But it's also very rewarding to work that way because you're working on your thing as your project. You're making something happen that hasn't existed before. That's very exciting. And although it is full on, it is just one of the most rewarding experiences you can have. Okay, let's talk about the, the do's and don'ts you sent me. So on, on the topic of how to found, run and exit an energy company. So thank you very much for these advice. Let's review them one by one. And the first one you sent was build a culture of positive growth. Can you explain me a bit more about this? When you get your founding team together, it's a very, very important step. It's choose people who share your values, but they're also not exactly the same people as you. So you need the complementary skills. You need to be able to have a constructive debate. And that is the starting kind of core of it. And then when you go into hiring your team, it's the same thing. I always look for mindset. Of course, skills need to be need to be there if you're talking specific tasks, like if you if you work in tech, you need to be able to code, etc. But most importantly is the mindset. So do you buy into the vision that we have as a company? So for 100, it was transparent, affordable energy for as many people as possible. Is that something you care about? Is that something you want to contribute to? So the mindset of signing up for that is as important as the skills. And if you find that, then you can grow together. And I also very much believe in giving people the space to grow. So if we agree this is the goal we're aiming for, then you can allow people to use their own structure, their own head to, to accomplish that. So not having to dictate, but to, to coach, to give people the the framework and the wings to grow, that is something that I believe massively contributes to your success. It enables you to grow perpetually, to really scale. And that to me is part of a culture of positive growth. The other part of this is also that as a team of the people running a company, to be very honest with yourself to say, this is what I'm really good at and this is what I'm not so good at and hence I find I surround myself with others who compliment me and on top of that I'd also look into my own eyes and everybody else as to say after a few months are we the ones who can take this forward where have we got our limitations and continuing to work on that and learning and growing as a team both as the whole company and as the management team is what makes success for me um, so that sums up the culture of positive growth. How many were you in the founding team and what was the hardest part in building this culture of positive growth and bringing these people together during these three years? In the beginning, it was pretty much three of us. So we had the CTO, we had the CEO, we had uh, everything else, if you want. And the next team that came on board was the tech team that was hired. And so the first task was to build the MVP. We hired our proper first employee in, I think, in January 2018. And before that, we'd, we'd juggle and see who are the people who could help us on a very quick turnaround basis. As we were growing as a team and with our market reach, it was quite exciting to get more people on board to kind of help us in thinking differently and identifying the gaps that we had. So. For example, um, we got a Scrum Master on board. We also worked with a coach with a team. And this outsider's perspective is, is very, very useful and identified for us where we just have to tweak our offer, how we have to tweak our way of working. And by doing this regularly, we kept on track. And um, yeah, it just helped us structure things differently as we were growing. Because of course, 
the task of running a company that has a few hundreds of customers versus a company that has thousands of customers is very, very different. And um, so you have to grow with your task. And we manage this by getting outside advice in and working um, on how we, we change processes and how we uh, work together as a team. When it comes to the second do you send me, you said make it easy for people to choose your offer. So I guess here you were talking about the products or were you talking about the business model? Was it the UX, the benefits? So can you explain me a bit more about this mm -hmm. part? So let's start with the product. Fundamentally, if you go into the market, you want to solve a problem. Um, the problem we were solving was that we wanted to provide excellent customer service and affordable green energy in the market where that was still not the norm. There were players who were doing this really, really well, but they were relatively, I mean, not, not the biggest. But if you say we create this offer that is possible for everybody to choose, then you really do make a difference. So if that is your starting point, you say you want to provide a green, affordable product to as many people as possible, that then means you have to set up for this growth. That will then influence your tech strategy, that will influence how you market yourself, that will influence your user experience. So the two things work together. And of course, if you say, this is our tech, this is our user experience, then what is your business model behind that? So one supports the other. If we're looking at it from the user's perspective, when I say make it easy for people to choose it, and I have built a product that is green, affordable, easy to choose, I can easily leave, I'm not locking you into a contract, then actually, I don't care why people choose to go with us. It is just simply, is it because it's local? Is it because it's, it's cheaper? Is it because it's green or because you think the, the name is cool? I don't mind. As many people as possible can choose this and indirectly then contribute to our vision of, you know, this is good for all of us because it's green energy. So I like this little play to say it's my responsibility as the company that provides the service to make sure this is the best thing but why people ultimately choose it i don't really mind and it's the the ease of these two things come together that for me mean magic and that is the what i also talk about tech for good is that i'm using technology to develop a product that is a positive contribution to society that helps with decarbonization And of course, the other way of reading tech for good is something that perpetuates, that scales, that will stay, that will continue growing and continue delivering on the goodness. So it's a principle that I use when I build offers. And the beautiful thing is that it makes it easy for people to choose. So how do you know you are actually building the best product for the people? Because you said at the end of the day, people choose you for various reasons, but you try to make sure that you build the best product for them. How do you know you are building the best product for them? How do you check that? So you set out with, with an idea of what you think is right. You can rely on reports, you do your, your market research. Um, we conducted a lot of interviews in the beginning. And I think a lot of new ideas set out this way and they go and really, really check is it the thing that people want. But, and that also to me contributes to this culture of positive growth, is you must keep checking. It's not enough to do this in the beginning and you build it and then hallelujah and forever you just run with your very first hypothesis. You need to check if it's still relevant. In the case of 400, we had a community for our users to go into and talk about pretty much whatever they liked. And it was not, um, well, it was, it was is monitored, but it was not kind of uh, moderated in the way you couldn't say what you wanted. So we had a lot of criticism as well, say, like, I don't understand, how does it make sense? And so through being very open in this channel to the wider public, people could come to us and challenge us 24-7. And if you listen and really take into account what people actually mean, you can change, you can keep changing your product. I gave a talk at Google actually relatively early on on product and I said, if you know what your product will look like in three months, you're doing something wrong. Because you have to work on your offer together with your user. You have to check if your assumptions are still right. And in our case, we had our own uh, interpretation of what transparent looks like to say, here are the, we listed it in tabular form. What are the, the, the elements of the pricing? And our users in the community said, like, ooh, uh, that's just very different from what I'm used to seeing. I don't understand. 
And they alerted us to the fact that other companies use specific terms and people were very much used to these terms when they were, say, comparing energy uh, companies. And so we said, aha, that's really interesting to know. So, so we looked at this as well. And then we, within a day, we could tweak it because we were very fast. So the feedback from our user base gave us the impulse to change something that is better for them and, yeah, help with our transparency idea. So that's the way to do it. Keep checking, keep listening and keep challenging if what you assume is still correct. Which channel were you basically using to get this community feedback? And from, like, let's say, when on did you get that channel started? Oh, we, we launched the communities straight away. What is the Facebook group? Was it a, a, a digital forum that you, you built yourself? It's a digital forum based on technology of a partner. Um, it's a company that also okay, runs so communities for, for other players like Airbnb and O2. So they're very... Um, knowledgeable and running communities. Is, is it a link you can share in the resources later on? Yeah, sure. It's a company called Standing on Giants. They're London-based. I'm very happy to, to share that name. Be able to check it out. That's also surprising because, I mean, you know, I would not expect that people would actually, about the electricity topic, would actually go and take an action, a step to go and start talking into a community forum of the energy provider, one of the, the, you know, the big energy providers in, in Germany, I would like to switch, but I would not come to my mind to say, okay, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to check if they have a community forum and then start to complain about this and this also, start to know what others are doing. So that's actually really interesting to know that even at that level, even if you think that energy would be something that is, is by definition very corporate, you would have people directly engage into this, these community. Well, the community was there to create a conversation. So we put a lot of knowledge into this to say, where does the NHG come from? How do we run our company? What are the people behind us? And also a bit like a blog, what do we care about? How do we see the general market can change? And so if you create this kind of engagement, people who are interested in this have a space where they can con con contribute to this conversation. Um, yes, it's very unusual, but we, we did do things differently from, from other companies. And um, this being close to our users was something that was very, very important to us. Yeah, I and mean, I think that's a very smart thing to do as an entrepreneur here. It's a part of building the brand and it, like it, it contributes to building the brand uh, and to establish it and to make it like trustworthy in that case. The third do you sent me was use tech for good. You already mentioned it. Is there something you want to add on that topic for the entrepreneurs out there? So when you, when you set out to build something, of course, you have a choice. You know, there's a different, there's choice of cloud platforms, there's choices of partners to work with. For me, it's using the right tech stack that you can adjust, you know, that is as flexible as you need it to be. What I also think is quite interesting is when you build a platform then that other people can use, which is something that Octopus obviously is doing. So building a technology that is not just good for you to use, but others to, to jump on to kind of speed up their goodness is something that I think is very, very inspiring. So that is a big highlight of using tech for good. More specifically, say, if you wanted to create an offer that's super ultra transparent, then you need tech to do this. You know, how do you gather your data? How do you crunch it? How do you supply it? How do you visualize it? All of that you need tech for, and I think it's a good use of tech to, to do this, to create this openness to transparency. Also, not to forget is how can you build tools for your own people and operations to actually do their job well? It's something maybe that is not obviously the first thing on, on people's agendas. When you look at tech teams, what do they build first is normally the user interface, the product that the user uses. But what about your own people, your own team that then serves these customers? <laughs> what kind of things do they work with? And it is extremely powerful if you have really good tools for your internal team, because the easier they can do their job, the better they can help your users. So that is something where you can absolutely use tech for good to enable your own operations to provide a fantastic service. Have you built these tools or some of these tools or did you have some tools that you you would recommend to use for that? We started out with a daily call and then quickly realized that's not enough. We need a way of recording what's going on. So if some a team was struggling with a challenge, how do you do that? And then it quickly became 
some kind of Excel sheet and then it became a Google sheet. And at some point you get to a space where it's just, it's not possible. The complexity is just too big. But I, I think this will resonate with people who have gone through this journey. You start out with a very basic thing. And so we realized we needed to build a tool where you can both see the customer data and see where, where there are customer accounts where things are not going so well and that need help. So we built this ourselves. In the first instance, it was reviewed after a few months to iron out things that weren't working so well. We did then at this point get some external help on board, a specific team that we hired to build this specific interface. So basically we invented it for ourselves and kept improving it. So it was an in-house thing and it very much helped to gather different data sources together so that a customer service agent went a customer got in touch, could see, you know, what tariff are they on? Where do they live? What's the problem and how can I solve it? So it was definitely a journey of an evolving tech to help people to do a good job. So that was like your own CRM then? Yes. Good. Let's talk now about the don't you send me. The first one you mentioned was don't forget to check out that your business goals match your life goals. I guess that's something I know you as well. You're a mom, so I guess you probably have some some advice here for mompreneurs and dadpreneurs out here. But first, let's focus on what you mean by don't forget to check that your business goals match your life goals. So if you are not 100% behind the company you're founding, so if you say, I want to scale globally, but actually internally for yourself, you say, well, in two years time, I, I, I want to do something else, then that is a conflict. And I think... People need to be honest with themselves, how much of themselves they want to put into their startup, how much they can give themselves. That is just time-wise, dedication-wise, just one question. But regional aspect as well, say if, if you live in country A, but you want to expand to different ones, is maybe this your end goal? Do you want to move somewhere else? And how does that work in running your business? It's just thinking about your own aspiration as a person is what is the life that I want to lead and how does that fit with uh, the company that I'm running? I'm not sure how many people ask themselves this question regularly, because of course you start out, this is my dream and this is what I want to do. But checking in regularly with yourself is like, is this still how I want to do this? Is this still what resonates with me that makes me get up with joy to do every day? Then yeah, I think the regular checking in is really important because if you get to a point where maybe you have some doubt, this is also a really good sign to say things have changed and sort of identify what has changed and how you mitigate this, where you can get some more advice, where you have to learn new things, just not to get off track and find yourself after months to be kind of not in at peace with yourself. Do you have a specific example of revelation or surprise you had yourself in that journey and how you matched both and how you had to maybe readjust or align? I'm, I'm someone who is, is quite spontaneously jumping into one thing to the next. So I have moved countries a few times. So from living in East Germany originally, I then went to West Germany and I lived in France and I moved to the UK. I didn't think of like all the implications of, of these moves at the time when I did them. But as you have more responsibility, you say, I think I have a family or if you're running a business, then these things are not just about you, but they are about the bigger picture. And so say if you are opening an office in a different country, what are the regulatory environments? What does that mean for you personally, maybe? This is something that I encourage people to explore more. Of course, you can't always answer all the questions in advance, but I know for myself, say, if you, how many years of uh, residency in one country has implications on another, it's just, it gets really complex. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to get too far into this, but just, it's good to just uh, realize that it's not just about you as a person and about a company, but there are also like legal implications of what you do. So it's, it can be quite complex. So just make sure you check and you have somebody wise on your side who can maybe alert you if maybe you're going into some territory that might later on create some problems. Very good point. The second don't is a very interesting one to me because it opens up to a lot of follow-up questions is don't let your advisors decide for you. Surround yourself with advisors who think long-term and maybe you want to expand a bit on that and what you sent me about this. 
Of course, when you are setting out on founding a company and growing and fundraising, you do need legal advice. And I have seen that the culture of getting legal advice varies quite a bit between nations. If I'm just going black and white, I'd say in Germany, it's much more common that if you ask question A, you get a reply A. Maybe in the UK, you get a bit more advice. Um, I'm somebody who likes getting expert advice because if I'm in a territory that I don't know very well, and law is obviously something that I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so how am I supposed to know? So if I ask a question, that will be an indication of a concern that I have. And I like to surround myself with advisors who try to understand what the concern is rather than just answering the specific question that I asked them. And I have had the experience that when I work with people like this, the outcome is fundamentally better. And yeah, so find somebody who is in there with you for the long run. It's important uh, who understands what it means to grow. So for example, if you are just setting out and you're thinking of what kind of incorporation, what's a Gesellschaftsform in Germany would say to use, not just to choose for right now, but if you say, I want to go global in 10 years time, if you already have this kind of path of where you want to go. What does that mean now? But also what does it mean in the future and how can you prepare and choose the right setup? It's not just about the now, it's about the long term. And um, I have seen that some people don't think like that. And I would advise um, everyone to find somebody who helps you think through this process and ask you questions you might not ask yourself in the beginning because you're just not aware of them at the moment. And this is where expert advice for the long run is super, super valuable. To dig into that, how do you find out your advisor so that everything you said is completely right and I completely get it? But let's say tomorrow, with your experience, you start in a new country or you have to be advised on a topic that you really don't know about. How do you know, how do you find these advisors? How do you filter them? How do you know which one is actually doing what you said, being able to advise you on the long term? How do you figure out that? Well, of course, the do your research is the first step. And ask for recommendations in that space is the second one for me. The recommendations one is very powerful because then you can question experience that other people have had with these advisors. The third very important component, though, is to not stop thinking yourself. If something doesn't feel right, if you have um, another question, always trust your instinct, trust your feeling if something's not quite right or if you're not sure to not blindly trust somebody, but make sure you get the feeling like, yes, this is how I want it and I'm reassured. Because in the end, you are the one who makes the decision and you are the one who has to live with it. So you can't then go back and say, oh, but I got this bad advice and now it's your fault. That's just not how it works. It's your responsibility to, to decide and hence coming to a good decision is absolutely your own responsibility. And so having people who can help you think through and are open to more dialogue when it's necessary is, is, is a very good sign. So do your research, ask for recommendation and trust your instinct. Yes. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Don't settle until you're satisfied. This is where sometimes I struggle. Sometimes you don't have the time. And uh, even though when you made your research, I sometimes have the, the feeling that it depends how many people you can attract around you or easily you can find these different people as well or get recommendations. And I think that's what I hear from most successful entrepreneurs is sometimes where I struggle myself. When you have that gut feeling that like, maybe it's not the right one, but right now it's probably what the, what the best I have. It's probably difficult to say, okay, I'm going to wait longer instead of going with that one. But uh, you're probably right that in that case, it's always better to wait a bit longer. I mean, the other thing is also you don't have to do everything yourself, right? If it's a very complex issue that needs to be figured out, you can get uh, somebody to specifically work on this in your team and um, you can guide them with your brief, with your ideas, with your questions and have somebody else to kind of dig in deeper and then brief you. And then that helps with making decisions as well. One last question on that topic. What kind of advisors did you get in general for that specific company, for example, your company? So you are legal, but do you have other examples of advisors you took for the team or for the, the company and for yourself? Well, you have the, the kind of, I would say, the admin advisors and in, into which fold the lawyers, the, the, the tax accountants, the keepers. You need to have them, obviously, because otherwise you can't run your company. 
but advise us in the sense of how can we grow as a team? And I'm coming back to this positive culture. It's getting someone in who has experience in bigger teams who can help, who helped us improve our own communication, identify uh, training gaps. So these things are also extremely important. So we had a coach that came in, we had our scrum master that we hired, and that improved the way we worked together, which was, which was really, really, really helpful and contributed to our success and building, building this culture. We should also not forget that your investors are also your advisors. They all have their own agenda, what they want to achieve. You fit into their portfolio. They have a greater goal, what they want to achieve with being with you. So also here is really important to check is how do you fit as a company that gets this investment? How do you fit into the portfolio of your investor? What is their end goal? How, do, how can they help you? What are the contacts actually that they have that can help you do a better job? Where can you learn and how can they support you outside of just the money? So that's a very, very important group of advisors that maybe sometimes people don't think about that. The reason why we then chose to go with Octopus was because we were so much aligned in where we wanted to go and on the tech and using tech for good and on the culture and on the values. So that was just a fantastically good fit. And so looking at also on the money front, that is not just the money, but what else do people bring is a big advisory pot to be used for the good as well. While we are to a perfect bridge right now when you are talking about the, the investors and the investment in general. So can you tell me a bit more about how much funding you've raised during these three years, which kind of funding and how it was basically used during the three years? So we started out with um, our own money. So we put everything we had into this. And uh, the next step as is for quite a lot of businesses is to go for, with an angel round. So we raised money from people who were in our network. And with these two pots, we, we got through our first year. It was clear at this point that the next round was coming and we had two more fundraisers before we sold the company ultimately. And from our own money over angel investors, we went into the institutional space and the final round was then kind of handing it all over to one investor. And that was in the end of 2019. When you are raising funding, how do you know how much you're supposed to raise? How long do you try to last? So you said the engine run is one year, but after, how do you calculate? How do you evaluate that? So when fundraising, what's really important is to be realistic about how much you need and what is a good amount for investors to want to be interested in. I have found that this kind of amount is about half a million where it starts being interested if you're still young, if this is kind of so you're starting out. At the same time, you have to be careful that um, you're not using this amount just in terms of vanity, because you have, if you have just a good idea, it's very difficult to raise uh, this amount because, of course, investors want to see that you have a solid business model, that it's realistic to raise this amount of money because it will always be based on the valuation of your company. They will ask you, what is this based on? What kind of revenues are you looking at? So you could say generally in the energy sector is you probably going with like a thousand euros of turnover per household that you serve. So um, in energy, it's a volumes game. So the more households you supply, obviously, the more turnover you will have. At the same time, it's a really relatively low margin game. So you might have a lot of volume that is going through your systems, but you don't ultimately like this is not for winning on like 50% margins. This is not the case. If you can show to an investor, you have a regular monthly revenue that will grow as you have more users on your system. That is obviously a very attractive proposition because you can see how it scales. The model is relatively simple in terms of revenue also going into foreign markets. So I think it's a really, really good space that is attractive. So um, when you're fundraising, you need to see what is the realistic story you can show, not the story, the realistic picture you can show. Where does the growth come from? Where do your costs go? What do you spend your money on? And when does your investor get their money back? It's obviously super, super important. So as I said in the beginning, half a million is probably when people start getting interested. At the moment, because there's relatively, <laughs> there's quite a lot of excitement in the market and there's lots of money around. It's also a bit of a vanity game. How much have you raised? I would be a bit careful. I have seen um, companies who have raised a lot of money and then you can see the drop in satisfaction at the customer service level. 
Because I think we need to stay lean and keen as well. It is not because you've raised so and so many millions that now you've made it. You have convinced investors that your company is worth something. But the humility that comes from you as a person and setting out to do something positive needs to remain. So if, say, you use your funds that have raised to go on a vanity campaign of getting yourself a super fancy office in, in, a, in a fantastic location and have lots of parties, then I don't know if that is the right way of using your money. I, want, I would want to see how you actually make a positive contribution to your own vision that you set out to serve. So say if you want to deliver green, affordable energy to lots and lots of people, if you're raising money, how do you use this in order to make this happen? So are you improving your technology? Are you hiring the right kind of people? Are you changing the way you run your business in order to still go for this? So that is really important to me. And that's what I would like to say about raising funding is continue to be realistic and use the funds to fulfill your vision. Don't become complacent and don't do the vanity game. I think it's not good for you. It's not good for your users ultimately. So stay humble and stay keen. I love that part because this podcast is called Mission First. And this is at the end what you're saying is keep your mission first and the funding should support that mission. Something you mentioned as well previously when we talked about the advisors, you talked about being able to identify uh, training gaps. And the last uh, advice you sent was don't forget to learn and grow yourself. So in the beginning when he started out, I was thrown into the cold water really with some topics I had never personally been in the detail of. For example, the whole legal framework of getting ready to be supplied through the pipes and the, the lines of the energy sector. So that needed a lot of attention and I had to quickly learn how to deal with this complexity before I then was able to hire somebody to take this over to be in the proper hands. So I learned a lot about contracts. I learned a lot about how to not tweak, but make sure that you have the right kind of systems in place in order to facilitate a process. And I didn't know that before we started. So I am quite proud. This is a moment I still remember vividly. I'm really, really proud of the, the fact that once I handed over topics to other people, we got to the point where one day we were all in the same office, we were sitting together and somebody asked a question that I didn't have the answer to. And I was really, really, really happy because not all the knowledge was centered in me. I had a team of people who could answer that question, which is great. Because I think there's a danger here to say, I want to kind of, you know, control and know everything that is, that is not sustainable. You start out with an idea and then your job as the founder is to kind of surround yourself with the right people who then can take specific topics forward and help them to do that and to keep hold of the vision and kind of inspire everybody. This is where we want to go and this is, this is how you get people behind it. But also to learn that it's not just you who can know everything. So that was a fantastic feeling. I really enjoyed that. I talked about how I give people a framework and how I give them wings to grow and learning the tools on how you do this. I, for myself, did this by uh, surrounding myself with people who do it well, who I admire. And there are one, two people who I think of when I want to crack a specific challenge. So say, how do you set up your team to work seamlessly together? To, to How do you set goals? I think and I talk to people I trust. And of course, there's lots of resources that you can learn from. I read, I am very curious to hear what is the latest and greatest in, say, I don't know, how you set up teams, how you create goals, how you measure success, all of this. And a lot of has happened in the, in the last few years with like OKRs, for example, that originally came out of Google and where it says we set quarterly goals and they should be really ambitious. You shouldn't actually be able to achieve them all, but help your team to pay into these goals. And that goes for me into this where I say, I want to help my team to grow. I want them to be better than they were yesterday. I want them to, you know, just see how they've achieved to what we've achieved together. And so learning the, the, the systems that exist and the tools that exist is something that fascinates me that I really enjoy. And I, I just love doing more and more of that and um, then sharing this as well with, with others to continue in this footpath. Keep on learning the whole time. This is something that I hear and I think that's it's a trait of entrepreneurs. Let's talk now about the exiting process in general. You managed to exit the company after three years and you mentioned in one of our conversation or uh, email exchange that this was a strategic exit. So 
first of all, can you explain what do you mean by what is a strategic exit? Strategic exit is a term in the industry that says you are kind of getting together with somebody in your industry. So we were an energy company acquired by an energy company rather than saying you're selling an energy company to an investment fund who just have other assets. So strategic exit means you are um, joining together with some other player in, in your market. Okay, so if you look at the different elements, the key elements for the exit, what is the key elements for that in general or, or in your case, if that can apply, if, if that's very specific? Was it the growth? Was it the amount of clients? Was it the, the fact that you were, for example, elected as the fairest clean energy in Germany? So our vision was to supply as many households as possible. And so we were looking for ways of doing this. And through fundraising and growing your own systems, that was one way of doing this. Now, we had an offer from Octopus Energy that was to acquire all of the company. And when we were going through this process, first of all, we were thinking like, oh, but um, hmm, maybe we, we cannot not influence, say, in which market we go next. But at the same time, here is a player who's been extremely successful, already operates in the UK and in Australia. So how can we not want to get together with someone who has the same kind of vision, also builds on tech to do the right thing? Because yes, you give up your baby in a way, you, you kind of hand it over to a bigger organization. But in our case, it fulfilled absolutely the vision that we had for ourselves to go global, to go big, to have a really big impact. And we realized together with Octopus, we'd be much, much stronger and we'd be quicker in doing this. So it was absolutely the right decision to do this, even if years before we wouldn't have thought that we wanted to do that. So it's something for everybody to understand. It's like you just don't know what comes your way. You just keep your eyes open, have an open mind, but never forget what is your vision and where do you want to get to. And if then the two things align, that the development in your path on which you go and the vision come together in this beautiful way, then why not? This is the right thing to do. So the values match, the tech match, the, the vision match was absolutely crucial because we knew it would uh, benefit the growth, it would benefit the tech, and ultimately the customers would be able to choose a product, not just in Germany, but also in the UK and in other markets. And what have you learned what is the most important thing that you've learned through that exit on a personal level as a founder? It is the, the emotional journey of, I would have liked to continue to be the one running the show a bit longer <laughs> versus here is so much I can learn from an organization that is already a few years ahead of us. So I'm, I was very excited about learning. And of course, I was a bit sad that I had to give up the complete independence. Yeah, so it's a... Emotionally, very interesting space to be in. It's the excitement with a bit of sadness, but it's a space where you can be really proud because you can see you've come to a point where through this step, you can be bigger than what you, what you could have done alone, which is very, very positive. If we talk about on the personal level as well, you said you had this big vision for the company. You want to go global. You're talking about tech for good. So I know that you are really passionate about trying to have a positive impact on the world. And we had this discussion also with uh, Ernesto Garnier, where saying that, like, should we go for not selling your company and go IPO and keep the control in your company? Or is it a good thing to actually be able to sell the company at a personal level? Because then as a founder, you get some investment back that you can reinvest into something else in the future. Is that something as well that played an important part on your side? Like the amount of money you would get from that exit that would allow you to gen then work on your next projects? It's a really interesting question. For me, I honestly just thought about what is the right thing to do for our offer, for our users, for our company. So as I just said, this whole like going bigger and having a bigger impact, that's what I was after and that's what I'm really proud of. The actual numbers, what it means to me personally, is probably something that goes into the space what I described earlier about how does your life goal align with your business goals. Then when it just comes back to you as on a personal level, it's actually a really, really good point and probably something that um, reflecting on earlier in this journey is, is not wrong. But fundamentally for me, I was so proud that we were going this step that the absolute personal financial implications is not something that I was thinking about. But you're right that I have since parting with 400, I have made my, my own investments. 
because I fundamentally very much care about contributing to decarbonization and making making it easier for people to to live their lives. So I've made two investments and I am on the board of two companies. This is my way of passing on my knowledge and contributing. I love doing this and I am very much interested in hearing about spaces where I can bring my knowledge and I can drive growth and I can drive impact. Uh, just to be clear, I'm not looking to make any more investments because I know people get in touch about this at the moment. I'm, I'm happy with what I have, but <laughs> I am very keen to hear from organizations, actually from VCs who are looking for people who are experienced like me to drive agendas forward to say they've invested in a player and they want um, somebody to help them grow this. That I'm very, very interested in. In which fields in general? So the obvious one is energy. So let's just say if, if there's an energy company that wants to go in a different space, I've, I've done this so I can do it again. I am personally very interested in finance because there's quite a bit of focus on ethical finance now. And I know there's a lot of criticism as well. It's like, how green can we be in, in finance? But it's a very nice topic to explore. People are, so just like even me, we're interested in not just investing money because you get some returns, but I, for myself, I want to know where does my money go and say some banks invest in uh, digging out coal from the ground. That's something I want to know and I don't want to, to bank with these people. So being a bit more transparent in that field and signaling to people, where is there a space where I can buy moving my money? Can I also influence how the future looks like? I really like that. So that's a space also I explore. I mean, look, anywhere where I can use tech and human behavior in a way to create something positive is there's a quite a wide range of where you can do this. I think my strength is in fields that have a very, very strong customer service focus that have a, the direct interaction with the user. So energy, other utilities or service, service offers is something that I personally feel quite passionate about. And if you talk about the transition to actually the point where you are right now, What did you do to help the transition as a founder? Have you worked the, for Octopus Energy for a while after the company was sold? And then we'll talk about the next one, which is how do you make revenue right now? Or are you on a sabbatical? It was quite an exciting time to, to get together with Octopus. And uh, there were lots of questions that had to be asked. It's like, how do we now run our teams? Um, who's in charge of what? Uh, what is done in the UK? What is done in Germany? Where are the gaps that we need to fill? What are, how do we get the two stack, tech stacks together and exploring the answers to these questions was very exciting. Um, there was lots to do. And so this was my task in, in that time to identify learnings that we could share. So where is something that we've done um, in Germany really well that would be beneficial to uh, the bigger organization? And of course, the experience from Octopus themselves, how could we implement some of their processes into Germany? So it was a definite knowledge exchange and saying, where have we done, where is the best solution basically, and which one do we go forward with? Um, that's a very exciting process. I very much enjoyed. And then we came to this kind of natural end also, where I think the handover was done, the team's running. And I decided for myself that it's also time to kind of step away. And I took a bit of a break, which was fantastic. <laughs> And um, I also started topping up my knowledge in a different field. So I've been very passionate about a user behavior. That is something that shows in all my ventures that I've started. And I decided to go and be a student again. So I started an executive master at LSE in London, specifically on behavioral economics, which brings together the science of psychology and human behavior and economics, which is fascinating. So. My aim is to combine my experience in not just the energy sector, but as an entrepreneur, as somebody who's run and grown a company with human behavior and how we can use this together with tech to make a real difference. And I am also planning to write about this more. I have been commissioned contract into writing a book about it, which is something that I am planning to do. So watch the space. I've said it publicly now, so I will absolutely have to do it. So um, <laughs> my time at the moment is spent learning and exploring. And I am very happy to hear from organizations that would like to involve a person like me. Because, yeah, as I said, this portfolio of different projects is something that has been exciting for me across my life. 
but I think that's the way that I can contribute the most. So I'm hoping to do this in the future. And I am very happy for people to get in touch with me to have conversations about that. Thanks very much. That's definitely something that I wanted to ask you at the end. What can people do? But I think that's very, very clear now. Uh, and which kind of company you can help and with which experience that, that you have, actually. Let's talk about the usual questions I have for my guests. The first one being, what is the best advice you've been given as an entrepreneur? That to me sounds like uh, there's, there's this magical moment that somebody said something to me and then boom. I don't really have half that, to be honest. I've been quite self-aware throughout my career and my, my own life. So I think the advice that I give others and that I also continue giving myself is to never stop identifying where you can be better. And also asking for help is something that I'd, I'd say. I keep reminding myself of that because I'm someone who just tries to kind of do things well all the time. Which book or which books would you recommend entrepreneurs to read? You said you like to read a lot, so mm -hmm. I'm sure you have some good books to recommend here. One that I really love and I'm, I'm still reading at the moment is by Rory Sutherland, Alchemy. So alchemy in the, in the sense of like what people used to describe uh, magic to be. And he does actually use the word magic. And um, why I like it so much is a lot of businesses are driven purely by numbers. And I get it because we have to measure our success. But what you should never, never, ever forget, and this is something where I bring my magic is what does it feel like for people? What does it do to their lives? And a very beautiful example in alchemy is that if you want to make a train faster, you don't just think about make the engine stronger or make the rail smoother. It's also think about what happens between a person leaving their house and arriving at their destination. There's things you can do on this journey that has nothing to do with the train and the rail themselves, but will make a difference to the user journey. So. Let's not forget <laughs> that it's not just about the obvious one, the measurable, instantly measurable one, but the experience to the user, the experience to the person um, using your product can be very emotional and measuring that only in numbers is, is not always um, the right way to do it. Measuring the impact is What's is the important. name of the author? Rory Sutherland. And if you talk about podcasts, blogs, influencers, you would recommend? I love podcasts. My absolute favorite is No Stupid Questions. That's Angela Duckworth and Stephen Dubner. So Stephen Dubner is the Freakonomics guy and Angela Duckworth, she wrote Grit. So both of them, this is exactly in a space that I love, you know, it's about behavior, psychology and economics, how did they all come together to create magic. And there is another okay, one, fun. which is just a, a lot of fun as well. It's uh, Squeezing the Orange. What do they do? They take scientific papers and discuss them. So, but in a very funny way, the two people who do it, it's just like they laugh all the time. So whenever I listen to this, I learn something, but I always also laugh, which I think is a perfect combination. It's like, it just creates this wonderful positive mood. It's a real, real booster. I love it. So yes, just on, in between listening to one cool. of those is, is good fun. Thank you very much. The last question would be, can you tell us one thing about you that I wouldn't be able to find online? I'm just thinking now if you can actually find that online because I made a point in creating a profile about me and I did add in there like five things you didn't know about me. <laughs> and uh, so in there was, I, I used to have a Soviet Union citizenship because uh, I was born in GDR and that was the thing that, that was done for me, which is quite funny. <laughs> Finally, one last thing is, do you have anything to ask to the audience? You already like said a few things. If you have anything to ask to the audience of entrepreneurs, maybe investors, employees for or partners for future collaborations that you would like to ask, now is your time. I'd be very keen to hear from people who have a good link into Berlin or say other people who can influence the big decisions. Because of course, say, especially like energy pricing or envir environmental policy is still decided through regulation, through government. And um, talking to the right people here who have an influence to, to change these is something that is quite interesting to me. So I'd be very happy to have some, somebody connect me there. And if there's someone courageous to get a person like me on their board, to add the magic, to consider user experience more, to 
I guess you can make everything measurable, but who is interested in considering what the experience makes people feel and how we can positively influence that to kind of contribute to the greater good, I'd be also very, very interested in this conversation. And where can people find you best? Is it LinkedIn? LinkedIn is a really good one because you can also see contributions that I've already made. You can read about my background. You can see my public appearances. There's links to podcasts that I've been on. So yes, definitely good space to find out more about me. So LinkedIn, Ilona Nita. I will share the links. I will share the link to your LinkedIn Great. profile in any case in the episode notes. Ilona, thank you very much for all your advice today and for sharing all your experience so transparently with us today. I wish you uh, all the best in your journey and in all the next exciting projects that you're going to start and to work on and have a great weekend. Thank you very much, Sheila, and good work. I really like that you kind of identify people who have things to share, who are inspiring, who have shared their experience, because that is how we all kind of learn from each other and contribute, which is really good. Thank you. Thank you, Ilona. Ciao, ciao. If you like this episode, you can share it with your friends because sharing is caring and you can give it a five star on Apple podcast because this really helps to make it more visible to other entrepreneurs working on a better future like you. If you are busy and might not have the time to listen to all episodes of this podcast, just a little tip. Sign up for my newsletter on gtimpact.com. You will receive the summary of advice from each episode and you will get personal recommendations on which episode you should focus on depending on your current challenges, your industry and your startup stage. Thank you very much and see you next week for the next episode. Have a nice day.